A 50-year low that surprised everyone. The lead starts right now. The U.S. economy has regained all of the jobs lost during the pandemic. What the July jobs report stunner means for the high cost of basics like gas, food, and housing. And then missiles, military drills, and now a communication cutoff. Tensions between the U.S. and China get worse as the White House summons China's ambassador and Beijing sanctions Nancy Pelosi. Plus, water wars pitting neighbors against neighbors as states fight over who gets to use the river that fuels life. We visit two states that are facing off. Hello and welcome to The Lead on this Friday. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin this hour with our world lead and a pair of escalating international crises. Russia and the United States are now indicating they're ready to hold talks about a prisoner swap. Just a day after a Russian court convicted American basketball star Brittany Griner of drug smuggling and sentenced her to nine years in prison. Now, potential prisoner swap talks could include fellow American Paul Wieland, who has been detained in Russia since 2018. We're going to have more on that in just a moment. But first, another crisis unfolding. China is taking dramatic new steps in retaliation for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, including sanctioning Pelosi and her family. Plus, military escalation. Taiwan's defense ministry reports dozens of Chinese warplanes crossing into its air defense territory today. And in return, the White House summoned the Chinese ambassador. And the administration says it's expecting further provocative actions. As CNN's Barbara Starr reports, all of this comes as China announces it's suspending cooperation with the U.S. on a range of issues critical to both countries and the world. A torrent of Chinese aircraft, missiles and ships moved towards Taiwan as soon as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi left the island. China marking off areas encircling Taiwan where its military is doing more than just drills. Taiwan says 68 Chinese warplanes flew around the Taiwan Strait Friday. Chinese drones flew close to Japan, prompting Tokyo to scramble fighter jets. Even as it called for calm, the White House stepping up its rhetoric, summoning China's ambassador to the U.S. to condemn the provocations. An official with the Chinese embassy in Washington told reporters that the issue of Taiwan is sensitive, saying Taiwan is one of the very few issues that might take China and the United States to conflict or even a war. So extra caution and a sense of responsibility are indispensable when it comes to Taiwan. But the U.S. is worried China is unveiling a potentially years-long campaign, constant pressure on Taiwan, aimed at eventual takeover. Beijing's provocative actions are a significant escalation in its long-standing attempt to change the status quo. In Beijing, total rejection of the U.S. position. If they really worry about the regional peace and stability, why didn't they act earlier to prevent Pelosi from paying a provocative visit to Taiwan? China reacting by canceling phone calls and meetings between Chinese and U.S. defense officials, pausing climate talks with the United States and sanctioning Pelosi and her immediate family. Still a muted U.S. military response in the region. An intercontinental ballistic missile test postponed out of concern China could misinterpret it. 
The aircraft carrier Ronald Reagan expected to return to port in Japan next week after staying at sea for just a handful of extra days to maintain a U.S. presence near Taiwan. And we now have the first substantive statement from the Pentagon just a few moments ago from Todd Brazil, the acting DOD press secretary, and he says, and I quote, the PRC has chosen to overreact and use the speaker's visit as a pretext to increase provocative military activity in and around the Taiwan Strait. Part of this overreaction has been strictly limiting its defense engagements when any responsible state would recognize that we need them now the most. Although the PRC has unilaterally turned off a number of defense engagements, we remain open to communication and committing to build crisis communications and risk reduction mechanisms. The Pentagon tonight always worried about just how far this could ratchet up. Pamela? Understandably on high alert. Barbara Starr, thank you so much. And turning to Russia now and the renewed U.S. efforts to negotiate for the release of both Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Griner's lawyers tell CNN's Fred Plaikin today their court fight isn't over yet, as Russia says it's ready to talk about a swap. After the harsh verdict against Brittany Griner for drug charges, the WNBA star's lawyer, right after visiting Griner, tells me she's still in shock, but in a fighting spirit. She's doing better than yesterday. She's still processing what has happened. But we tried to cheer her up. We told you about this huge support she's getting, in fact, and in Russia now as well, because everybody here is very much surprised with this very harsh sentence. The court sentenced the two-time U.S. Olympic gold medalist to nine years in a Russian penal colony. And while her legal team says they will immediately appeal the verdict, which they say was deeply unfair, they'd welcome a prisoner swap to get Griner back to the U.S. It's just the perfect thing to get her home, of course. We hope that she will get home soon. Now that the sentence has been handed down, Russia, for the first time, is saying it's willing to engage with the U.S. on a possible exchange. And that a mechanism for such swaps was put in place after President Biden's summit with Russian leader Vladimir Putin in Switzerland last year. As for specifically on the issue of persons convicted in Russia and in the U.S., I have already said that there is the special channel that was agreed to by the presidents. Whatever might be said publicly, this channel is still relevant. The U.S. has said it's put an offer on the table to get both Brittany Griner and former Marine Paul Whelan, who's currently serving a 16-year sentence in Russia for espionage, which he denies, released. CNN learning that the Biden administration is offering convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot in return. Secretary of State Blinken says Washington will take up Moscow's offer to negotiate. We put forward, as you know, a substantial proposal uh, that Russia should engage with us on. Um, and what Foreign Minister Lavrov said this morning and said publicly is that they are prepared to engage through channels we've established to do just that. And we'll be pursuing that. The Kremlin was extremely irritated when the U.S. made its offer public last week. Vladimir Putin's spokesman saying any future talks need to be held in secret or they'll fail. If we discuss even a few details of prisoner exchanges via the press, then those exchanges will never take place. The Americans have already made that mistake, suddenly deciding to use megaphone diplomacy to resolve these issues. This is not how they are resolved, so we will not give any comments. 
And Pamela, Brittany Griner is not yet in that very tough penal colony. She hasn't been moved there yet. She's still in the detention facility that she's been in the whole time. That is because all of that is still pending the appeal that her lawyers say they are going to file. Now, we have learned from the lawyers today, those appeals are usually dealt with very quickly here in Russia. It can take only one trial session to get that over with. And the success rate here in Russia, not very high for appeals, Pamela. Replikin in Moscow, thank you so much. And joining us now to, live to discuss all of this is Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen of New Hampshire. She serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Hi, Senator. So the Russian foreign minister is talking about negotiating through a, quote, specified channel between President Putin and President Biden. Help us understand what that means. Well, I hope what that means is that the Russians are serious about negotiating through those private channels. I assume that's why uh, Foreign Secretary Lavrov made that announcement. And clearly, the U.S. announcement that we had put an offer on the table is something that has put some pressure on the Russians. So they feel a need to respond. And I think that's very important as we look at how we can help both Brittany Greiner and Paul Whelan, who have been held really as political prisoners by Russia. And so hopefully this is a good sign that we'll see negotiations move forward. Well, today, Trevor Reed, who was released in April after serving nearly three years in a Russian prison, shared a little bit about what Greiner is facing. Anyone who uh, is in a forced labor camp in Russia is obviously, you know, facing uh, serious threats to their health because of malnutrition. You know, there's little to no medical attention there whatsoever. Uh, tuberculosis runs rampant in Russian prisons. There's diseases that they have there in Russia which are largely extinct in the United States now. And we should note, detained American Paul Whelan's health has suffered immensely while he has been in, in prison in Russia. You know, and we should note that there's no guarantee that Russia would accept an offer for a prisoner swap. Do you think that there is any scenario, Senator, where the U.S. would let Brittany Griner actually serve her nine-year sentence in Russia? I think it's very important, and I have seen this in cases where Americans were being held um, in foreign countries it's very important that we continue to um, engage with the Russians on a regular basis, that we continue to remind them how important it is to release these Americans, how unlawful it is for them to be held in, as political prisoners, um, for us to continue to keep the pressure on. And I think that that is the reason that uh, Secretary Blinken released the details of what the United States had put on the table so we could try and get Russia to the negotiating table so we can hopefully work out some sort of an agreement that will release those Americans. I want to turn to China. China is ramping up retaliation for Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and that could have big consequences for the United States. Did you think China would go this far this soon after that trip? You know, it sort of reminds me of politics 101. When things aren't going well at home, you find an enemy and you try and ramp up opposition to that enemy as a way to make people at home forget um, that they're not happy with President Xi's COVID policies in China, that the economy is not growing as fast as people were expecting. And he's got his big political um, conference coming up where he's hoping to get a third term this fall. And so he's trying to do everything he can to bring the Chinese people behind him and his policies. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is an effort 
I think he used um, Speaker Pelosi's trip as an excuse. They had obviously had those um, drills and exercises. They've been working on those for a long period of time. Those didn't just come together in this week. Right, but, but critics would say, look, Nancy Pelosi gave him that excuse. I want to get your reaction to something Speaker Pelosi said before departing Asia today. They may try to keep Taiwan from visiting or participating in other places, but they will not isolate Taiwan by preventing us to travel there. They are not doing our travel schedule. This isn't just about a travel schedule, though, Senator. I mean, this is about impacting U.S. foreign policy with another uh, superpower. And now you have the Chinese embassy in D.C. saying that Taiwan is one of the few issues that could lead to war. Do you think Speaker Pelosi overstepped her bounds here? Look, America's policy toward Taiwan and China has not changed. It didn't change because of Speaker Pelosi's trip. That was very clear to the Chinese. Um, I think it is irresponsible for China to try and pretend that their problem with Taiwan is Speaker Pelosi's visit. Um, The problem that the Chinese have with Taiwan, they've been very clear about. They want to take Taiwan back because they don't want a democracy just miles off their shore because the Chinese people can see how, what it's like to be free in Taiwan, what it's like to be able to determine their own leadership, what it's like to have an economy that's growing. So that's, that's who should be blamed for this trip. Um, it's the President Xi and the People's Republic of China. Okay, very quickly, Senator, uh, before you go, I've got to ask you, do you think President Biden should run again? I think President Biden is doing a good job, and he's going to make that determination based on um, his personal future. But do you and, think he and should? What? I think he should run again. Yes, if he decides he wants to run again, then absolutely he should run again. All right, Democratic Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, the July jobs report, much, much better than expected. What that means for the possibility of a recession up next. And then it is so difficult to get the monkeypox vaccine. People are standing in line for hours, several days in a row. That's ahead. In our money lead, today's way better than expected job numbers have President Biden and the Democrats crowing, economists scratching their heads and Wall Street investors in a funk. Employers added 528,000 jobs in July, twice as many as expected, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent. Now, strictly in terms of numbers, this means the U.S. economy now has recovered all of the jobs it lost during the pandemic. And July's unemployment rate matches the 50-year low we were at when the pandemic started. And yet, the Dow Industrials, S&P 500, and NASDAQ spent much of the day in red. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan to help make sense of this also. First of all, Matt, take us through the job numbers. Why were economists predicting worse than what we saw? Yeah, Pamela, this really was a shocker. Basically, everyone on Wall Street expected that hiring was going to cool off in July. Instead, it heated up. This 528,000 jobs added didn't just beat expectations. It crushed it. It was actually 200,000 jobs stronger than even the most optimistic forecaster had predicted. Everyone basically underestimated how desperate companies are for workers right now. And their strength was across the board. Leisure and hospitality, professional services, healthcare, 
all of them adding jobs, companies are still making money. Many of them are in expansion mode. That means they are hiring workers. They're not firing them. They are raising wages. They're not cutting them. And right now, I think if you look at all of this together, it really paints the picture, Pamela, of a jobs market that remains hot. Yeah, but you have these numbers competing with inflation and consumer sour mood. But listen to what the Democrats are saying today. We're almost at 10 million jobs. Almost at 10 million jobs since I took office. That's the fastest job growth in history. If we were in a recession, companies would be laying people off rather than hiring them. So we're back to that same question, Matt. Are we in a recession or heading toward a recession or not? Well, Pimble, I think there is a little bit of a timing issue here. Some have argued that the U.S. economy is already in recession. And I think today's jobs report severely undermines that argument. I mean, in a recession, you would be losing not just hundreds of thousands of jobs, but millions of jobs. You would have business failures and wage cuts. And we're just not seeing that yet. But I do think that this keeps alive the medium term risk of a recession, because the problem is that the jobs market remains way too hot. Goldman Sachs put out a report saying that the jobs market is currently overheating. And so that does mean that the Fed is going to have to do more to cool things off. So this does keep alive the risk of a boom bust scenario, though perhaps the bust is not a 2022 story. It's 2023 or 2024. But then you have Wall Street's utterly blasé reaction today. Uh, to the numbers, why are investors so gloomy? Well, Pamela, uh, sometimes good news on Main Street is treated as bad news on Wall Street. The second that these numbers came out, we saw markets take a hit, although they they did uh, rebound somewhat. I think the big concern from investors' perspective is that this means the Federal Reserve is going to have to keep up its war on inflation. Remember, they've been aggressively raising interest rates, trying to slow this uh, jobs market down. And today's report suggests that they have a lot more work to do. Matt Egan, thank you. Quote, when he breathes, he lies. That's how the lawyer for two Sandy Hook parents summed up Alex Jones. This, as we wait for a second verdict from the jury. We'll be right back. Topping our national lead, a jury is deciding how much more, if any, in punitive damages far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has to pay, a day after it awarded Sandy Hook parents more than $4 million in the compensatory phase of the trial for his vile lies about that massacre. CNN's Drew Griffin is following this for us. So, Drew, Jones's net worth and the value of his companies, that was a big part of the hearing today. What did we learn? Yeah, well, first of all, we learned that Jones's camp did not provide all the information that the uh, the plaintiffs in this case for the parents of, of, of one kid who was killed at Sandy Hook uh, were trying to get. But an economist and kind of a special expert witness got on the stand and said, Jones's wealth is somewhere between $135 million and $270 million, despite whatever Jones says about bankruptcy. And something else that was interesting that Jones, after losing these lawsuits, which he did last year, began to start moving his money all around, pulled $62 million out in two-thousand-twenty-one, uh, and then started moving another 11000 a day into this group of companies. And there are nine different companies. Uh, they were described as shell companies, but they're just different companies, all connected to Alex Jones and and. The summation of the argument of these parents' attorneys was, look, this guy's loaded, send a message and silence him. Listen to this. So I ask of you to take 
the bullhorn away from Alex Jones and take the first steps towards taking that bullhorn away from all the others who have it or all the others who might want it, all the others who believe they can profit off of fear and misinformation. What do they want? They want the rest of that 150 million they asked for yesterday. They only got like 4.1. They want 155 plus million. For the defense, they say a fair money target today would be 270,000, Pamela. And awards, as we know, are much higher usually in the punitive phase. Should we expect to see that in this case? You might. You might see a whopper. What you need to remember, uh, Pamela, is not everything is as big as they say it is in Texas. And that includes punitive damages because there's a legal cap. There's legislation that caps the damage awards. So even if the jury does come back, say, with a whopper, $100 million, odds are that's going to be whittled down after the jury leaves. All right, Drew Griffin, thank you so much. And be sure to tune in tonight to Drew's deep dive and to Alex Jones, the CNN special report, Megaphone for Conspiracy. Alex Jones airs at 11 p.m. tonight. Well, changing the rules on monkeypox, the FDA now considering a way to stretch the limited vaccine supply as CNN gets an emotional firsthand look at those desperate to get a shot. In today's health lead, the U.S. monkeypox case count now has passed 7,000 and continues to grow. New CDC data shows it disproportionately affecting blacks and Hispanics. And since there isn't enough vaccine to meet the demand, the FDA is considering a rule change to allow healthcare providers to use a one-dose vial of the vaccine to administer up to five separate doses. As CNN's David Clover reports, people are lining up in the middle of the night, desperately hoping to get vaccinated before current supplies run out. We started early, just before 6 a.m. Our destination, familiar to our Uber driver. We were her third passenger that morning, also headed to San Francisco's Zuckerberg General Hospital. As we arrived, so too the sun, revealing a line with dozens, mostly men, camped out, waiting, some nearly all night. Security guard telling me that this line started building around two o'clock in the morning. All of them wanting to be vaccinated against the monkeypox virus. Cody Aarons tells me he's been trying for weeks, from New York to now here in the Bay Area. It definitely shows that people um, are concerned about it. And willing to stand in hours-long lines that spill onto the sidewalk. Inside, exhausted hospital staff face another day's surge in vaccine demand. COVID-19 still raging, and now monkeypox. I think one of our biggest challenges it's really just the inconsistency of the supply. If we could serve more, we would love to not have to turn people away. Here in California, nearly all of those who have reported probable or confirmed cases, more than 98% are men, with 97% of patients identifying as LGBTQ. While deaths are rare, the symptoms are visible and painful. Oh, I had between six and 800 lesions. It was like someone taking like a, a hole puncher all over my body. Um, right under my skin. So there are points where I couldn't walk, I couldn't touch things. Really difficult. 
Diagnosed on July 4th after attending New York City Pride, Kevin Kwong says his symptoms lasted some two weeks. He chronicled his recovery on social media. I think I really just didn't want to be alone. I wanted to connect with people and see if other people were also experiencing what I was. A familiar sentiment for longtime LGBTQ advocates living and working in San Francisco's famed Castro District. You get a sense that there is this growing uneasiness around monkeypox. For a lot of people, it's eerily reminiscent of what they experienced here in the early 80s with the AIDS crisis. There's fear, there's anger, there's anxiety, and there's stigma. It is a tragic, complicated stain on American history that deserves its own memoir. What is the same, however, is the lack of urgency, and the federal government has left us on our own to respond. It's personal for Tyler Tremier. He runs the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and lives with HIV. We have a responsibility to not further stigmatize or politicize this issue for a community that has long faced many issues dating all the way back to the earliest days of the HIV epidemic. Facing mounting criticisms for its handling of the outbreak, on Thursday, the Biden administration declared monkeypox a public health emergency, calling this a critical inflection point. The feeling that this is not getting the attention that it would if it were impacting uh, straight people, um, you know, is real. San Francisco Board Supervisor Raphael Mandelman experienced vaccine delays firsthand. I got myself over to San Francisco General by 5.30. I was the 123rd person in line. Back on San Francisco's front lines, Cody Aarons makes his third attempt to get vaccinated against the virus. Off camera, a hospital staffer updates the crowd. I hear him announcing something. I don't know if you can make out what he's saying. Just 45 minutes into the hospital's distribution. Oh, no guarantee for vaccines. They had already reached their daily limit. It's increasingly frustrating for those folks, Pamela. And there have been confirmed cases of monkeypox in children here in the U.S., only a handful so far. But here's the bigger concern, and this is the growing fear as these cases continue to go up in number. Similar to what we saw with COVID, new variants could arise. It could make this virus more transmissible, going well beyond the gay community. It could also make it more severe. It's for that reason, Pamela, you've got local, state, now federal leaders urgently trying to stop the spread. Pamela? David Culver, really important reporting there. Thank you so much. Governor, Senate, Secretary of State, and Attorney General in one state, election deniers have been nominated to all of these offices. So what will happen if they win? Our politics lead now, Michigan Congressman Peter Meyer, one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump, is speaking out after his razor-thin primary loss. Meyer has this message for Democrats after the party's congressional campaign arm spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads to boost his election denying opponent. Any party that pretends to have a set of values and that comes in and boosts exactly the same type of candidate that they claim is a fear to democracy, a threat to democracy, don't expect to have Republicans who will look at that and say, you know, I know I'm going to get heat from my own side. I never expected the other side to as well double down in a cynical ploy uh, to put forward the candidate they think is less electable. All right, let's discuss with our panel. I want to bring in uh, Karen first off, because you are a Democrat. I want to get your reaction to this finger pointing from Congressman Meyer. Does he have a point? Look, turns out there's politics in politics. I mean, 
The job of the DCCC is to hold on to the majority that we have in Congress. And I think it's important that we remember that, while yes, he took a courageous vote in terms of the impeachment of Donald Trump, he is an anti-choice Republican. He voted against the January 6th committee forming. So he is someone who has voted with the Republicans on a number of issues and blocked a number of the things that Democrats are trying to get done. Let me just ask you this, because it is not a sure bet that Gibbs will lose in the midterms. Gibbs is his opponent. Wouldn't Democrats rather work with a Meyer than a Gibbs? Well, again, they've got to do the, the role of the party committee is to do what they think will help them win in November. In this district, they think that we've got a shot with our Democratic candidate. So they've got to do what they think is best to give that candidate every opportunity. And look, people keep complaining Democrats aren't being tough. Well, they're being they're playing tough. They're playing hardball. Well, the sanctimonious nonsense of Democrats who say they are the party of pro-democracy to put their good money behind Republicans who are, are anti-election and are supportive of the the riots at the Capitol. That's awful. And think about this. What if you are a Democrat? A good Democrat running for office and money that should be going to you is going to a Republican. And and here's the thing. They are being used as pawns in Donald Trump's grievance of the past election. And And the Democrats need to. Isn't it a failure of Republicans that this is the Republican primary electorate, that these issues have that much weight in the Republican primary? That that's what your voters are voting for. No, the, what does that the, say about the party? The, Meyer's not running on uh, election fraud. He's not running on the insurrection. He's not running on not certifying the election but his results. He's, was, he's running. And they won. He's running on. He's running on uh, what they can do to fix the economy. He's focused on jobs and issues that are important to the people of his district. And unfortunately, and, thanks to the Democrats, he's not the nominee. Let me Republican actually uh, to, to Karen's point here. I do because this is a good jumping off point to talk about Arizona, where you have election deniers uh, winning the the primary. Uh, in these four key positions in that state, you have uh, governor, senate, se- secretary of state, and attorney general. Heidi, on that note, I mean, what is the significance of the election lies essentially winning in this case? The significance is that it's actually not just happening in this state. It's happening surgically in a lot of the states that Donald Trump contested wrongfully, by the way. There was no evidence of fraud or widespread fraud or ballot tampering in these states. But look at where it's happening in other states, like Michigan, the candidate there for secretary of state, as well as AG. It's a trifecta where the former president is going in. He's making these endorsements at the state level to try and elevate people uh, who buy into his election conspiracy theories. And so the threat here, Pamela, is not that all of these people are going to win, because in a lot of cases, they'll probably lose. But because of the surgical nature of it, if even just one gets into office in one of these critical battleground states, that could be a recipe for some real chaos in upcoming elections. And it's not only these kind of marquee races where that's happening. It's happening at the state house level. It's happening at the school board level. So this is building a bench of people who are just going to rise through the ranks and have this ideology. Now, could it change if Donald Trump is no, or former President Trump is not um, running the party, essentially? Perhaps. But this is, this is, the, this is what's being sown right now, um, both at these high levels and the base level. So 20 election deniers running for Secretary of State. But I think we have to remember that this is part of what we have been learning throughout the January 6th committee hearings. It's not just about Donald Trump. It is about the fact that that spurred a movement that is a clear and present danger to the United States of America today in these races. Well, let's just hope that the voters are smarter than this and see past this 
a lot of these people got where they were in these primaries. Uh, Carrie Lake, for example, by running on uh, false claims of election fraud, by campaigning against what she calls the enemy of the state, the media, which she used to be a part Echoing of. If they, if they don't shift their focus to what independent voters are concerned with, which is jobs and the economy and immigration and crime, they're not going to win. Let's just hope voters are smarter than that. Well, I want to talk about what's winning for, for Democrats. I mean, Democrats um, have had some some successes. You have Arizona Democratic Senator uh, Kirsten Sinema saying that she will vote for the party's sweeping economic and climate change package. Getting Sinema to say yes required stripping out a tax provision that would hit hedge fund and private equity managers and adding a 1% excise tax on companies' stock buybacks, which is intended to make up the lost revenue from removing the tax provision. I'm going to test all of you all on that in just a second. <laughs> it also changes how depreciated assets are deducted and adds billions in drought relief funding. Uh, this is a big deal. I mean, you know, look, President Biden did say he still believed in our form of government, in the United States form of government. Is this Washington working? Well, it's working for him. I mean, by all accounts, this is a huge record of success. And my opinion is that it depends on whether Democrats are going to let him take the win. And I hope that you agree with me on this, Karen. <laughs> but in the Republican Party, there tends to be a rallying effect around mm -hmm. the, uh, the, 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 leader, the leader, right? Around President Trump in this case in the past. Um, but Democrats tend to self-emulate a bit. Like the progressives will say, this was supposed to be Build Back Better. This was supposed to be paid maternity leave or uh, college education reimbursement for student loans. And we didn't get those things, so we're disappointed. So are Democrats going to take this, though, and say, this is a historic bill on climate change. This is going to help us with prescription drug costs. Will they? That is the big question. And it is, because, look, you have... Um, you have these legislative achievements or soon to be achievements. Um, you know, just I'm just looking at what President Biden can tout right now. Right. You have the, the killing of the Al Qaeda leader. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have all of these different things that are in his bucket. Lower gas prices as well. Good jobs report out today. I'll give him and chips. We'll give, him chips, give him chips. Throw that in there. Throw in the pact bill. Yes. Throw all that yes. in. And the question is, can Democrats turn these into tangible gains for Democrats, because we've seen historically, yeah. I believe in the 1960s, where they had the, the legislation of Medicare and Medicaid passed, yeah. and then Democrats actually lost seats in the following election. Well, hopefully, yes, and I agree with Heidi. Take the win and go, go campaign and try to take the win in November. And I do think that Kansas showed us how potent this, the issue of abortion is. And remember, in the fall, many states will be passing bans, so it will remind voters what's at stake in this election. All right. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate it. Well, what happens when people living in two different states are fighting over the same water source that is quickly disappearing? A look at the water wars up next. In our Earth Matters series, a new era of water wars as the West faces an unprecedented drought due to climate change. A war is brewing between Colorado and Nebraska over access to the South Platte River. CNN's Stephanie Elam reports on how one of those states is evoking a century-old deal to get more water from the other. Just make it known that water is life here. Sue Carter is among those in Julesburg, Colorado, who fear their lifeline is caught in a tug of war. We go through droughts every 20 years or so, but nothing of this magnitude. Not only has Tom Check had a front-row seat to a punishing drought, but also to a brewing battle between states. We are in for a wave of water rights battles throughout the West. It's going to be between urban and ag areas. It's going to be between states. 
Case in point, Colorado and Nebraska and the South Platte River, which flows from the Rocky Mountains into Nebraska. In January, Nebraska dusted off a 99-year-old compact between the two states, announcing a plan to build canals on Colorado land to siphon water off the South Platte into a Nebraska reservoir system during the non-irrigation months in the fall and winter. Without this compact and our ability to enforce our rights, we would see the dramatic impact upon our state. Why now? Nebraska points to Colorado's ever-growing population and its estimate of nearly $10 billion for 282 new projects along the South Platte. Should all the long-term goals be affected, they would reduce the amount of water flows coming to the state of Nebraska by 90%. The fact is many of those projects are not necessarily going to come to fruition. Colorado state leaders have raised an eyebrow at Nebraska's plans. In a statement to CNN, Colorado Governor Jared Polis calls it a political stunt, saying outgoing Governor Ricketts is wasting taxpayer dollars. Is Nebraska getting its fair share of water? In the 99-year history of the compact, we have complied with those provisions of the compact. I'm walking in the original canal Nebraska started to build in the 1890s, but never finished. Now, more than a century later, if they were to come back to this area, they'd have to navigate things like Interstate 76, as well as take over private lands. How do you feel about them potentially coming to grab this land? Well, obviously, nobody wants wants to lose any of their property. This land belongs to Jay Goddard, a fifth-generation rancher in this corner of Colorado who could see part of his land in Julesburg taken by Nebraska under eminent domain. But more important, he says, is what the canal might do to the overall health of the river. We have a lot of good wildlife, um, whether geese, turkey, deer. I'm worried that it'll dry up the river at the wrong time. Not only could that hurt Julesburg's hunting economy, but also its neighbors in Nebraska, Here, the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer is a timely rain. Farmer Darrell Armstrong wants assurances that the river won't be allowed to run dry. The South Platte basically is the lifeblood to our surface aquifer. Yet he says he's seeing less and less water coming down the river. So for him, it is less about Colorado versus Nebraska and more about urban growth versus agriculture. And a lot of the agreements that have been made that that, uh, we're coming up short. It's just the beginning of a new era of water wars in an age of unprecedented climate change as rivers dry up and desperation flows. Human nature is is our biggest barrier, I believe, in trying to manage water in the West. Stephanie Elam, CNN, at the Colorado-Nebraska border. And our thanks to Stephanie Elam for that report. We'll be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. Dana Bash will be talking to Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal in a special joint interview. Plus, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Democrat Stacey Abrams is at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. I'm Pamela Brown, and for Jake Tapper, you can follow me on Twitter at PamelaBrownCNN or tweet the show at the lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to join me this Saturday, 6 to 9 p.m. and Sunday, 6 to 8 p.m. on CNN Newsroom. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.